This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest today is Catlin Moon. Kat is the Director of Innovation Design at Vanderbilt Law School. In a nutshell, she is teaching today's law students how to be tomorrow's lawyers. It's an interesting discussion that we have, all kinds of technology-related stuff, how to keep your yourself healthy in a world where you're just saturated and overwhelmed by uh, technology and electronic devices, uh, how to bring those electronic devices to bear to, uh, to really focus your practice and deliver a good product for your clients. Uh, we also talked a, a good bit about uh, what's going on today in, as we interviewed in July of 2020 uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, what's going on with law students who are trying to take the bar exam. Uh, and the frustrations that those students are having and, and the different ways that different jurisdictions are dealing with it. Um, I found it very interesting. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's go. All right. So I'm sitting down today with Kat Moon. Kat is, uh, has a long, a, a long list of things that she is. I'll get this wrong, <laughs> but even though you just told me. You are the Director of Innovation and what at Vanderbilt Law School? The Director of Innovation Design. Innovation Design, also yeah. the director of the Poly Institute. We'll talk about that. Um, and uh, also, and this one, I, I have to ask. I'll just, we'll just do this now. It says that you are also an instructor in radiology and radiological services. <laughs> I am. How in the how does that like how, how yeah. does that happen? You're like, oh, I wanted yeah. to be a lawyer, but you know, first things first. So. So I, I'm also, I also teach in the law school, but as part of my work in the innovation space at Vanderbilt, I started collaborating with folks in the radiology department who are very forward thinking and very into human centered design, which is um, a big part of my work. And so I now um, am part of some of the work that folks in the radiology department do. Okay. So they have a medical innovators development program. It's very interesting. Um, these are students who have PhDs who come to medical school and go through the full medical school training with the purpose of actually going into medical innovation. And so I'm on the internal advisory board for that particular group. And it is directed by the person who chairs the department of radiology. And okay. uh, so that's kind of how I was brought into radiology. So I do not have any training in radiological <laughs> so services. Not like a doctor. You're um, not an MD no, okay. no, I didn't pick that up, you know, um, in the midst of all this, but yeah, so that's the short story. Okay. So how that came to be. Tell me a little bit about yeah, at some point you decided, I guess I'll become a lawyer. Um, was that something you always wanted to do? Or did, like me, did you sort of get forced into it by having no other good choices? So I'm a fifth generation lawyer. Okay. My dad um, still has an active license in Kentucky. And so the first of the five generations in my family that I know of um, is a man named Elijah Heiss, and he was actually the chief justice of what is now the Kentucky Supreme Court. And um, then his nephew, my great-grandfather, then great-uncle, grandfather, then my dad. So it finally um, landed on me and 
And I think it's fair to say it was never my plan to go to law school. Um, I did love school. I got a master's in communication after I finished my undergrad at Vanderbilt and really enjoyed that work. And when that ended, um, well, let me back up. I had intended to get a PhD in communication. And I realized upon entering that program that you lose a whole lot of control about where you will work when you enter um, higher education academia. And so I did not want to have to go to, for instance, Fargo, North Dakota. That's the only place where I could get a job after, you know, seven years of working on a PhD. So I finished my master's and my dad, the lawyer said, Hey, you should go to law school. That would be great. So sort of, because I wasn't sure what I was going to do next, but also, I think it was always a foregone conclusion I would end up in law school. Um, I'm the At oldest least to him, of right? three. I'm, I'm sorry? At least to him, it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I'm the oldest of three. I'm the most compliant of my parents' children when it comes <laughs> to following their wishes. Um, and, you know, the, the oldest child wants to please, all those things. So, so I went to Vanderbilt. And um, I stayed, even though I was not a fan of the law school experience. Um, <laughs> so, when when you Vanderbilt the, law school? Um, ninety five through ninety eight. Okay, I got so out. I in got 93. out twenty two. Yeah, yeah, I I finished in mm-hmm. at Vanderbilt in ninety three, and I also was not a fan of the law school experience. <laughs> I dealt, but I knew that going in. I knew that it was a means to an end, and yeah. something I had to do in order to become a lawyer. So um, that is true. That is, it is, there are other ways, but those ways are very limited. So, um, yeah, so I started practicing actually in Franklin right? um, after I graduated and I practiced, I, I closed my practice at the end of 2017, although I still have an active law license. And so that means People still, you know, friends still send me emails asking if I could please give them legal advice. Um, <laughs> but, but I started teaching at Vanderbilt um, three and a half years ago. So I'll be going into my fourth year of teaching and this fall. Was there something about the practice of law that you didn't like that caused you to think maybe I should find something else to do? <laughs> or did you really want to teach? Or how did that, how did that, how did you go from practicing lawyer to um, instructor? So I do love teaching. That has always been an objective to get back to teaching. I taught when I was working on my master's and that really to this day has been one of my most fulfilling professional experiences. So I knew I wanted to get back to teaching somehow. And after practicing for about 18, 19 years and frankly, never really feeling like being a practicing attorney was what I was like put on this planet to do, <laughs> honestly. Um, I just made the choice I was going to do something different. So I was in the moment of that pivot when I was introduced to the opportunity to bring my work and in innovation to Vanderbilt Law School. And so it really was an interesting confluence of, um, I, it's really serendipity, um, that I had the chance to focus on things that I did in my practice, which still, unfortunately, are unique 
um, and, you know, bring those things to legal education and all of that kind of falls in the innovation bucket. So what would you say were the things in your practice that you said it was unfortunate that, that they were <laughs> unique? What were, well, what are, it, when you say that, it, do you mean to say that like a lot of other lawyers should be doing what you were doing? Yes. Okay. So what would those, what would those things be? So in 2006, um, I was eight years into the practice and I opened a firm with a couple of other lawyers, um, Christy Earwood Ransom now and um, Christina Daugherty. And in that experience, I became really obsessed with how technology could support and empower the practice of law. And initially in large part because we were completely bootstrapping. We left firms that supported us fully with, you know, assistance and software and big ass right. copy machines and all and that stuff. Giant uh, green monitors that ran WordPerfect. Right, right. And so we had to figure out how to do things. And so I just, um, I, you know, I was super curious and I taught myself a lot and I completely redesigned how I practiced. And so within probably 12 months of opening our new firm, I was pretty much completely flat fee in my practice. So I was no longer beholden to billing six minute increments and just really focusing on um, efficiency and maximizing value and how can I use technology to do that and also really focusing on improving the client experience. Then client experience to this day um, for most people who interact with the average lawyer is still um, far below what it should and can be. And so I learned about something called human-centered design from some of my clients who were in the software design world. I learned about agile project management. And so I basically stole all these things and brought them into my practice. And that it, it completely changed how I worked and frankly, the kind of work I did. And so I've, you know, I've been doing that consistently so probably 2007, 2008. Yeah. You're talking and to a guy who had a Palm pilot in 1997 and the other lawyers in the courthouse were looking at me like I had three heads. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I was one of the first um, lawyers to have an iPad and I used to do CLEs on here's what you can do if you're a lawyer with your iPad. And I would, again, have people look at me similarly, like I have three heads and yeah, there you go iPhone or Android or whatever. So yeah, I still uh, clearly, see lawyers. I still see lawyers with paper calendars and oh yeah. you know, I'm like, oh yeah. and they, or they have to call their office and they're like, can I meet with someone on Tuesday? I'm like, Oh my yeah. God. Like you don't know if you can. Yeah. Right. Um, well, you can't figure that out. So, so yeah, that just became, um, you know, how I worked and really defined, you know, the kind of lawyer I was. And so, and that helped me, I guess, enjoy my practice more, but I still fundamentally just not completely satisfying. And I think also after you do anything for nearly, um, you know, two decades, you know, who's not ready <laughs> for a change I, I, at that point. I told point. you before so, we started recording, yeah. every lawyer I know uh, has a secret alternate uh, identity. <laughs> Yeah. Where they're a chef or they're, you know, yeah. um, or they're a, a whatever, anything but this. Um, <laughs> okay. So you got out. Good for you. 
Um, so yeah. now you now you are an instructor of both law students and um, and lawyers. Let's talk about the law students first. What are the I saw some of the classes that you're teaching. Um, what is it? Um, what are you teaching them? I am teaching them skills critical to being a successful and thriving lawyer in the 21st century. So what and, kind of, yeah. what is it that they're getting <laughs> from you that no one was offering us in 1991? Oh gosh. Um, well, everything I'm doing were things that no one offered us when we were in law school. So my, my, I, kind of flagship course is called Legal Problem Solving, and it's a course on human-centered design and applying the methods and tools and mindsets of design to how we practice law. And so what what is, okay, so let's pretend I have no idea what human-centered yeah, design means. Sure. <laughs> what, on, <laughs> in, the, in the first five minutes of the class where you say, this is a class about human-centered design, human-centered design is blank, well, so human-centered design is a collection of mindsets. It's also a collection of methods for designing services for humans to use that puts them at the center of your process for designing. So one way of thinking about it is um, it's a way of solving problems that puts the people who you are trying to solve the problems for at the center of your effort. So you must have deep empathy for the people who you are doing work for. Um, ideally, you are also collaborating with them. So it's a very collaborative process and it requires a great deal of creativity. It requires a willingness to try things, knowing that some things might not work, i.e. some things will fail. And it requires learning from the things that don't work. And so from my perspective, the value it brings to practicing lawyers is it's a fundamental shift away from a lawyer-centered system and focus on how do we solve people's legal, legal problems. And we are shifting the focus to the people who are experiencing the problems. Um, we currently have systems that were designed, mind you, more than 100 years ago in what is called the Second Industrial Revolution. And these systems were designed by and for lawyers and judges. They are designed to work well for those people. Um, they are not at all designed to work well uh, for the people who actually uh, have legal problems. And spoiler alert, <laughs> spoiler alert, these 100, 120-year-old processes that are designed for to work for lawyers and judges, they don't work so well anymore. And you know why? They don't because right now we are in the fourth industrial revolution. Right. The whole world has gone past us. is completely opposite in all ways from the world in which we arose, right? So, um, you know, human-centered design just offers a set of tools that helps lawyers reframe their focus to make it about the client, which, by the way, I think is the most consistent thing with our ethical obligations ever. Um, it's actually at the heart of, you know, our canon of ethics. So, um, and I've, I can reference, I have a website for this course called legalproblemsolving.org. And if you have show notes, you can stick that in. And it offers some great links that 
um, offer very accessible information on kind of myriad ways to think about human-centered design. So can I throw for anybody you listening, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Go. So uh, client can, comes in. I've been practicing law, doing divorces. Client comes in and says, turns out I'm going to get divorced. Um, here's my story. Traditionally, I would interview them and get the facts like, well, how long have you been married? Do you have children? Do you have 401ks? Do you have? So I would, I would immediately dive right into like ascertaining facts. And then I would probably turn quickly towards, um, okay, well, with that set of facts, we're, we're waiting on the other side to bring their version of the facts in. But with that set of facts, here are some, here are some um, maybe best and worst outcomes. Uh, and then we, and then I explained to them the myriad of different ways that the process could unfold, where it could be a little bit more collaborative, where we're trying to cooperate and get ourselves through this thing without, you know, delay and expense and acrimony, or depending upon what the other side's attitude, lawyer, et cetera, is, could go bad. Here's how that looks. How would that differ from a more human-centered design approach to this particular hypothetical divorce client. So uh, I will offer this as someone who has um, very little, if any experience in the divorce law world. Okay. <laughs> so that, that's not an area in which I practice, but um, I would say, and this really applies to any legal work you're doing, but looking at this particular situation, um, human-centered design would start from the truth that the client sitting in front of you um, has no experience with this system in this process and knows nothing about how any of this is going to work and is probably feeling a wild range of emotions, many of them negative. And so you would actually start instead of just digging right into just the facts, please, um, you would actually start by sharing information in an accessible way to help this person understand what the process is and how it works. And then instead of jumping in to extract specific information, um, thinking about how you can still with some efficiency, right? We can't like sit down and have a seven hour conversation with a client and expect to charge them for that. Um, but think about how you can give the client an opportunity first to just talk. And I think um, in, you know, I haven't had experience in necessarily this practice area, but I did a lot of um, I, I worked with small businesses, so I helped people create entities. I helped them enter into partnerships. I helped them really chart courses to create and grow successful businesses. And so what I would do is instead of just giving them like the list to fill out, you know, here are the seven things I need to know to draft your operating agreement. Um, I actually had a script that would take them through first me explaining um just some basic information. So they had some orientation to kind of how things worked, but then just simply listening, what is it you want to accomplish? And I think you could ask a divorce client the same thing because um, you mentioned when you were talking about kind of where you go in the process, um, 
throughout any legal process, there are choices to make that lead to more expensive and less expensive resolutions. They're like you're constantly making choices um, based on what kind of resolution you want, right? And um, I found, and um, and there is a lot of human-centered design application and law that supports this, that when you can make the process and the system much more accessible to the person who's going through it, then they are simply able to, they better understand and they're able to make better choices and frankly, make them more efficiently. Like it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah. And I think as lawyers, we are so, we're the experts, right? We know the system so well. We know how, how everything works from A to Z. And I think too often we forget the simple fact that the person who we're working for knows none of this. And right. so another key human-centered design mindset, which I think is critical to um, leading someone through a legal process in a really successful way is something called the beginner's mindset. And that is just constantly reminding yourself, my client doesn't know any of this stuff. Right. And so when we start throwing acronyms like Quadro, haha, I do know that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And things, um, things like that, you know, understanding this person, like they don't know what the hell a Quadro is. And, you know, um, and so I think at core, you start by just completely rethinking how do you begin this process with a client? And how do you see the entire process from their perspective? Yeah, and think, from their perspective, what would you do differently? Yeah, I, I, I tell people that I think it's a little bit like informed consent at the doctor's office, right? Like, okay, if I go in and I need, it turns out I, I need an appendectomy, I don't expect the doctor to explain the whole thing to me. Um, but I would like to know, uh, okay, this is, we're going to cut you. Um, (laughs) you're going to be under general anesthesia. Uh, when you wake up, uh, it's going to be, you're going to, it's going to hurt and, uh, life will be back to normal for you. If you do what I say, uh, within whatever, two weeks, six weeks, whatever it's going to be. So like some amount of informed consent. Now, if there were choices that I had to make in a much more complicated scenario, like let's say I was selecting courses of treatment for a cancer and I had this option, that option, or this option, I would want to have a little more extended conversation with the doctor about what the choices were and how they were going to unfold for me. So I try to, when I talk to clients, I try to give them the day one, like overview of here's what the process can look like. And then let them, cause I try to remind myself that although I've seen this movie a thousand times, this is mm-hmm. it for them. Um, th- this is the first time they've seen it. So they, I know how it ends, but they, they don't yet know how it ends. Exactly. And I think by also just constantly asking the client um, for their questions and listening. Um, I think there there's research that shows that, you know, lawyers, um, as inquisitive and good at gathering information as we are, we are not always the best listeners, especially when we go into a situation knowing we are the quote expert. Um so, and, and we miss important stuff. <laughs> and, you know, how many folks have been like, um, you know, how, how many times is something 
surprising in a bad way come out at an awkward time um, <laughs> because you know um, you know the lawyer didn't listen early enough soon enough <laughs> I have I have found that I have seen that happen and I have I have a standard practice that I've implemented to help prevent or at least reduce the chances of that at the end of every single initial consultation in a domestic case whether it's a divorce or custody or whatever I always ask the same question and I always tell them I'm about to ask you a question nothing that you have said has prompted me to ask this question I ask everyone this question please listen to the entire question this is the question and the question is what is the most difficult or embarrassing thing that this other person in this lawsuit could say about you that would be true whether they currently know it or not and I always tell them before I ask the question, if you have an answer, you're going to know immediately. And if you have to like think, oh, um, uh, then fine, think. But whatever the answer is, if you have to think about it, is probably not a big deal. But if you have an immediate like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I know yeah, the answer yeah. to this. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> that's how I that's how I get um, that's how I like get the confession that I need right up front. Try to avoid the zingers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so what does the classroom, the law school classroom of 2020 look like, assuming that COVID doesn't doesn't uh, change it anytime soon? Are kids so sadly, coming in with, I say kids, yeah. are young adults coming in with like iPads and notebooks and, and, and I, are you, are, is everybody plugged in and getting the same feed? How's this working? Yeah, well, so um, COVID notwithstanding, I would say that Yes. Um, you know, law students are leveraging technology. Everybody's got their laptop open um, or, you know, an iPad or what have you. Um, and I actively integrate technology into all my courses. We use Slack for all course communication. Um, I use a program called Trello to have my students do collaborative work in teams together. So we're constantly, I, I just bring it into the classroom because they're going to be on their devices anyway. And so let's, let's make it have a purpose. I will say from a physical perspective, the classrooms look very much like they did when you and I were in law school, which to me is very troubling because pedagogically um, the lect the standard method of teaching through lecturing is one of the least effective ways to teach. And um, we'll even put the whole debate over the Socratic method um, aside, but just the standard lecture model for teaching young adults is one of the least effective ways. And um, also we see a dearth of skills in collaborating once lawyers enter the practice. I think in large part because the law school curriculum hasn't traditionally given students the opportunity to practice collaborating with other people. Oh, it's, well, it's actually I can't speak to it opposite. now. Yeah, I was going to say, at yeah. least back in the day, it was, mm -mm, nope, any any advantage I that I may share with you yeah. is is yeah. not good for me. Absolutely. Zero-sum game, right? Um, so, Only one of us can book the class. Yes, exactly. Um, so you know, we have these physical spaces that are not at all well suited to the collaborative type of teamwork that I use in my teaching. And so my students spend a lot of time awkwardly grouped 
<laughs> around, you know, amphitheater. Of <laughs> seats. Yeah. In, in amphitheater style seating. Um, but they are, you know, they are definitely very digitally connected and I think for the most part savvy. And one of my objectives in all my classes as well is to really force them to become very comfortable with jumping in to use new technology tools in their legal work. Yeah. Uh, because while they are digital natives, I can assure you when they enter a law firm that is not sophisticated technology wise, they will assimilate because they want to do what everyone else is doing because that is how you get ahead at a law firm. You do what the people around you do and you do it the way they do it. And so if they are not embracing technology, I'm telling you there are students five years out who um, have become as archaic in the way they work as the 20 year partners who they work for. It drove me crazy. The, my first, okay, so I'll date myself. Uh, the first email address I ever had was at the law firm in 1993. Um, it was dial up internet so you could hear mm -hmm. it buzzing oh, and yeah. popping and everything. Um, big green screen, uh, ran WordPerfect, I think 5.0. Um, I don't even know if they still make WordPerfect now. But um, I never, so I was in that group, age group that like, we got computers to, we, we taught ourselves to write basic on a Tandy 6400 or whatever, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, when I got to the law office, I was not unfamiliar with a keyboard and a screen, but um, I had, um, so I was sitting there early on working one day and I was at the keyboard and I was writing something. Now, I never wrote anything out longhand. I never did that. If I, if I wrote something, I always used a typewriter to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting there working, writing a motion or a pleading or whatever. And this partner comes by and he sticks his head in and he says, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm writing this motion. He goes, we don't pay you to type. We pay you to, we pay you to research and write. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not typing. He was like, we pay her to type. And he points at the secretary. I'm like, gotcha. And, you know, it, he couldn't wrap his head around the difference between what he did, which was go in his office and pick up a dictaphone and say, Susie, take a letter. And then he would dictate and then she would type it and bring it in and he would take his pencil and mark on it and then send it back to her. And this process went two or three times. And finally they got something he could sign. I never did that. I never, I can't dictate to save my life. If you gave me a dictaphone, I would give it away. I, I would, it wouldn't be of any use to me. Um, so I've always been that way. And I don't think I ever would have worked out long-term at a big firm because I've always <laughs> been, I've always been like, whatever the next thing that makes my job easier and faster and, and more efficient for me, I'm going to have it. Like that's why I just bought the newest iPad and um, organizations just move slowly and the law move, and law offices move slower still, I think. Yeah. Well, I, that's very true. And I'm a big believer in the fact that mindsets really influence um, how well we do or do not embrace change and, you know, for anyone interested in really understanding how in the pandemic we could have lawyers and judges um, suddenly embracing this technology like Zoom um, and, you know, and, and suddenly being much more efficient and doing things in a much more reasonable, frankly, user-centered way. Um, I don't think it's because the pandemic has changed how we're wired at all. Um, I would refer 
folks to a book called Focus um, by Heidi Grant. Um, and it very clearly outlines two specific mindsets, approaches to the world and how we work. And um, lawyers have the mindset that really we do not change unless change is forced upon us. And the second that the change is no longer forced, we are most likely to retreat back to um, our safety zone. Oh my God. I can't and, tell you. And I think seeing that. That is exactly what is happening yeah. right now. We're, as we yeah. record this in July of 2020, just today, after after 60 or 90 days of courthouses being essentially closed to anything except like things that have constitutional timing issues. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but there is a judge who, in the, even as Tennessee cases are spiking through the roof, setting a new record day over day, every day for new cases, there's a judge in Tennessee who has decided that he's not doing any more Zoom hearings. He's not doing any more um, conveniences. Everyone's coming to his courtroom. And by God, we're just going to Windex everything and wear a mask. And I'm sitting there going, did you, like, did you not know how much we loved not having to come to the courthouse to do a simple irreconcilable divorce hearing that takes three minutes? Did it not occur to you how many more you were able to do? Did, did, did like, did you not see how, how much everyone preferred it? Never mind, took to it because it was necessary, but like wanted to keep doing it? Nope. Nope. Coming back to the courthouse. Let me just say this. The reason I do what I do is because that behavior is indefensible <laughs> and, and unacceptable. And I will spend <laughs> all of my time making sure that the lawyers who are coming up, who are someday going to be judges, never, ever, ever behave that way. And, and um, I should, I mean, I should add that there are others that are like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, good. They had, I had a, I had a, a hearing with yep. a judge in um, Gallatin. If I'm going to brag on him, I'll say uh, Judge Thompson in Gallatin. Um, could have had me come up there, but didn't. Simple motion. Judge Thompson's assistant sent out an email a few, a few days before that said, we expect to put you in the Zoom room at about 9.30. So be standing by. Okay. About 9.30, they put me in the Zoom room, pulled, all the, pulled the other lawyer in. We were done in 15 minutes. Off you go. That saved me two hours of driving. Never mind 30 or 45 minutes or an hour of waiting around in a courtroom. Some judges are going to keep doing that and good for them good for them. So if you're bringing up people to, to be like that, then, then good. Cause I may still be around. Well, so here's the thing. Um, more than 80% of the people in this country who have a legal problem, never get legal help. 85% of the people who have an issue, which could be resolved in a legal system, never even enter the system. For every 20,000 people in Tennessee who qualify for civil legal aid, there is one attorney to help them. And it's not just a matter of money. It's, a, it's the fact that we have a system that was built 100 years ago by judges and lawyers to serve them that cannot possibly help 
the number of people who need help. And so I think it is unethical. It is an ethical breach for a judge to refuse to leverage technology to serve the people that that judge exists to serve. And (laughs) to that end, um, I'm conducting research right now on what's happening across the country in just this area. Um, I'm working on a piece that hopefully Chief Justice McCormick of the Michigan Supreme Court and I will be publishing in the not too distant future that examines in large part the work that they've done in Michigan to ensure that all these positive changes they're making stay. And and to help those who really like their second industrial revolution world come along with the rest of us. And leave them behind. (laughs) Well, some of them, honestly, some of them will have to die. Um, And I don't, and 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 that's not a, a, that's not a a threat of violence. I'm just saying that some folks have positions that that until they die. (laughs) Right. They have power Um, and they're not going to, and they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it any differently. I, I had a guy call me the other day and asked for my fax number, an old lawyer. And I was like, are you about to fax me something for real? For you're about to fax me something. You can't make it a PDF and email it to me. Like, oh, I don't know. Any 10 year old could. Okay, dude, like you need to just, it, you may, and, and I, and, and I sent him back a PDF and he couldn't deal with it. And I was like, I'm thinking to myself, it might be time for you to quit. Like if, yeah. if you can't manage a PDF attachment to an email, the world has left you behind. So just, yeah, like, I, yeah. I don't have any sympathy for that. Okay. So, so, <laughs> uh, so I have so much I could say, but yeah. <laughs> You got another question? Maybe I yes. should. Yeah. I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, well, it's okay. It's my podcast. You can offend anyone you want. They don't have to listen. This is not a required class. Okay. Um, okay so what would you tell a small law firm or a sole practitioner lawyer if they're not doing it now, um, they should be in terms of like, um, maybe it's a piece of software, maybe it's a, a way that they approach the practice. I mean, not something maybe like meta big, but like, look, if you're not, if you're not running your firm with this piece of software or this particular item of technology or whatever, you're, you really need to start there and fix that. So this is a technology specific question or could it be what they should? Okay. Well, so the tech, Technology answer both. Me. Answer the answer the technology one, and then the okay. uh, whichever other one you thought you had. In because mind. my caveat is that um, technology is simply a tool, mm-hmm. and um, until you do the work that helps you figure out either what tech or how to use the tech, the tech is useless. Okay. Um, and and I can tell you that you know when I was practicing, I um, I started using. Um, you know, I had files in the cloud before Dropbox and Box even existed. Um, I was creating my own practice management system before Clio, which is a popular cloud-based um, practice management system, even existed. And to this day, too few lawyers use any of those products. I, um, and I, this I, just, was, I don't even, I don't even understand you know, that world two, anymore. 2008. So I think that there are some clearly there's some low hanging fruit, right? Like if you are not using a system that helps you um, 
organize all your cases, make everything easily accessible via the cloud, and um, give your client instant access to the information they need when they need it, then you, I think, are committing malpractice at this point, given the tools that exist. Um, I think to choose not to leverage available technology because you are too busy doing your work to figure out how to do it um, is just reprehensible. So I'll say that. So I think there's some low hanging fruit and I would say a robust practice management system would be an obvious choice. Um, We can start there. I will say before you even start doing that though, um, you've really got to understand how you work and how you should be working. And if we're talking about creating a client centered practice, the only way you can figure out how you should be working is by asking your clients what they're happy about and what they're not happy about. So the oh, one uh, thing you know I think are actually willing to ask that question, <laughs> then they are going to continue to practice law, wishing that they did something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> right. But like um, imagine getting but to the end of this the conversation saying to your client, um, now what did you not like about how I practice law? Here's the thing, like, but the beauty of that is that that is the only way you can learn and grow and actually be a good lawyer. Like, if you're a client, like, uh, it just blows my mind that lawyers are so unwilling to ask for feedback from clients because um, it is the most simple thing to do. And can I tell you that clients are so rarely asked that you would even be surprised that you're likely to not even get super critical feedback because people are so happy to have been asked, what do you think? But it's a really simple, it's a simple process. And let's say you're too afraid to ask your clients, Um, do a retrospective with yourself and the team that supports your work. Super simple. You ask three questions after you finish any matter. You ask what went well with that that we definitely should keep doing. Like what have we nailed? What's going well? Um, What didn't go so well that we need to change or stop doing? And there's always something, right? There is always something. And then what are we not doing that we should be doing? Because if you are paying attention to your interactions with your clients, you're picking up clues about things that they need in the process that you're not giving them. And so just ask those three questions and come up with one answer to the three questions every time you close a matter. And if you're too afraid to ask clients these questions, then just ask yourself and ask the folks who support your work. And here's the other thing that we don't do, and shame, 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 shame on us. The people who support our practices, we do not ask them enough what we should be doing differently and better. Um, I have seen way too many dictatorial lawyers, um, like the ones who want, you know, their associates not to be doing their own typing. Surely that's a thing of the past, but... um, we can learn so much about how to serve our clients better by asking and listening to the people who support our work and make it possible. Um, our, our administrative support um, are a wealth of knowledge. Um, I will tell you, my dad, he's practiced law longer than I've been alive. 
the single smartest person in his office is the woman who started working as his secretary when she was 18. And she could she's practice the best law lawyer. better she's, than my father. <laughs> probably the best lawyer in town. Yes. Because she not only, she came to understand the legal aspects um, because she, you know, typed everything my father dictated to her. Um, but also um, she understood all, all the, the practical, the operational pieces. Right. And, and so, and she was probably the front person for the Yeah, she was probably the front person. Yes, and she was interface for all the clients. Right, yeah. she was customer service and front door. So yeah, so she understood when there was a bottleneck, right? Um, so it's really just about understanding your own processes and figuring out how can I make my processes better. And then once you figure out your process, find the tools to support your process. Okay, so. Now there's a risk in this, at least for me. Um, I am, I work for myself. I work by myself. I do not have a staff. I don't have anyone that takes my calls or prepares or opens my mail or does any of that. If you call the law office, my law office, you get me. Um, So the risk for that, of course, is that when is the law office closed? Uh, Well, on the one hand, never. Um, On the other hand, um, I I make money that other people don't because maybe I'll answer the phone on Saturday or maybe I'll answer the phone on a Sunday night when it rings and just see what's the worst that can happen. Someone calls me and wastes 10 minutes of my time or it could be the case that like writes me a check in the morning. But how do you suggest that lawyers balance and keep a healthy balance between accessing all this technology, which you can put in your pocket and never get away from, and on the, you know, how do you, how do you like do it in a way that you can maintain your, your health and your family relationships and your own well-being? That is such an important question um, because another significant challenge that we face in the legal profession is that um, we have a severe mental well-being crisis. Um, we are much more likely as a tribe of people to be depressed, anxious, suicidal, um, drug addicted, alcohol addicted. Um, And I think more than the general population, we've got to be really aware of how we manage our work and how we manage these boundaries. And the first step is acknowledging that, again, as a profession, we are much more likely to face these challenges than the average person. And knowing this, um, I think it is incumbent upon individuals in the practice to recognize and be militant about setting and maintaining boundaries. Ultimately, this is an individual obligation, right? Um, it's your choice. Do you want to you want to talk about your two? I don't know what you did, like ten days or two weeks, where you just were like, "I'm done, I'm out." Um, oh, me? Yeah. No, no I, I okay. shut things off. I, right. so, like, I, well, it's called we Extreme Medical. Right. When we were yeah. setting this up, yeah. I, I sent you an email and I got, I think I got an auto response that said, You did. You, that said, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Extreme Medical. Right. Yeah. We had, <laughs> we had set the, we had set the, the time and date that we would record. Yeah. Um, and I emailed you like five days ago or something and it said, and, and I got this instant, yeah, no, 
<laughs> you know, it's a screen sabbatical also- until that day. And I was like, oh, um, hmm, this is an interesting development. We're supposed to record that day. Yeah, I, I did actually respond to your email. You will know. Um, look, I think when you, you, you did, are but- a practicing, when you are a practicing lawyer and my, so in my, honestly, my level of obligation is lower. Um, I'm a law professor. And I have um, the privilege of also being able to include the name and a number of a person at Vanderbilt Law School who you can contact when you get that auto response from me if you need immediate help, right? If you didn't hear from me, you could have pinged Victoria and said, mm-hmm. hey, Victoria, has Cat mm-hmm. like left the country? What's going on? Right. Um, so I, I do think when you, when you bear the obligation of having active legal matters and people are relying on you. Um, yes, that does up the ante. And I think that's when, um, you have to have frankly a network in place. And so hopefully you have some planning, for instance, you're a, you're a solo practitioner. And, um, if you're not around, like what happens to all your cases, right? So I think that we are not going to find that out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but those are hard questions. I think that, we've, I think we, we have an ethical obligation to set boundaries for ourselves and also put in place the structures that make sure that our clients matters are handled. And we have to be able to practice in a way that respects our, our whole lives. Right. Right. Um, You can choose to be a workaholic as a lawyer, just like you can choose to be a workaholic in any profession and that, and and if that's your choice, that's your choice. But I can tell you that one of the reasons we are not a healthy profession is because the current way most people work or are expected to work leaves them little choice. Is is to make, is to grind out hours. Yes. And, and let's, let's go back to an example from court. You know, what doesn't help a lawyer practice efficiently and set boundaries. It does not help a lawyer to be forced to come and sit in a courtroom at a docket call for two hours to spend five minutes making an announcement or presenting a motion that's or going doing to be an ID by the or court. doing an ID divorce or doing an ID divorce an irreconcilable differences mm-hmm. divorce um, I agree. that 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 judges require that to happen in the way they do i frankly contributes to an inability for lawyers to set reasonable boundaries because it puts, um, because it puts that someone is com- it, it's it puts completely someone, wasted time yeah and it puts someone like me in a bind right where like yep. the client is well aware if they come that I showed up at nine o'clock judge said case. I said, I'm here. We sat there for two hours. What did I do for two hours? Well, probably looked at, you know, TikTok or something, but I also probably dealt with text messages and emails and everything else. And then we did our 10 minutes of thing and then we leave. Now it's 1130. Now who do I charge for all that? Right? Like the client doesn't want to be paid, doesn't want to be charged for two and a half hours. Absolutely not. Um, Nor should they have to. Nor should they, you know, (laughs) but, and, and I'm, I'm usually pretty fair about that. Like if I did, I bring my iPad and if I am able to send this, sit there and edit a document or make a document or deal with emails or whatever, then minute for minute, I'll deduct my time off of whoever I'm sitting there in court for. On the other hand, if, if I have to go somewhere and be there, I, I can't just give that away. 
Nope. So I do hope that I do hope that well, the practice will change. I do hope that a lot of the changes that were forced upon us by this pandemic yes. that have turned out to be good can be made to stick around. We have to figure out a way to make that happen. Um, I think we will be failing in our obligations um, because right now, lawyers who have passed a bar exam or otherwise been licensed to practice in a very few other limited ways are the only people in the U.S. who can provide legal services. And we, with that privilege, right, comes a great responsibility and obligation. And if we refuse to move into the fourth industrial revolution with the rest of the world, then I question whether we deserve that privilege any longer. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, the the law and the practice of law changes at like glacial drift pace until one day it erupts and changes everything instantly, right? So like, like we're just moseying along and and like even now if you read the the statute on the grounds for divorce in Tennessee today 2020 one ground for divorce that a person can offer is that their spouse subjected their person to indignities now i've never seen that pled or litigated but it's on the books so that tells you something about what the what the evolution of divorce law looks like, right? Like you can go to court and complain that presumably your husband has offered indignities to your person. So, I mean, that sounds like 19th century to me. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, you get you get a you get a landmark decision out of the Supreme Court that changes everything overnight. You know, let's say Obergefell, you know, gay marriage or Brown versus Board of Education or whatever. So the law is this weird thing where it's like completely change resistant and moves incredibly slowly. Uh, and then one day just bam, erupts and says, all different world today. I just wish we could be a little bit more deliberate about moving it along in between those periods of nothing and then the eruption of, you know, let's say progress. Yes, because we we exist in reactive mode. Um, there, We don't have a mechanism. We don't have a, a mindset for being proactive and really, I, I think of, an incredible missed opportunity at this point in time because lawyers are generally incredibly smart people. We are curious. We have great intellectual rigor. Um, We have the capacity to really lead and make positive proactive changes, right? That move our legal systems into the fourth industrial revolution and really um, just make net gains for creating access to legal services and access to justice. Um, unfortunately, for too many of us, the mindset is solely reactive. So we don't even think about um, how could we be moving things forward. We're just standing around waiting for something to change for us to react to. And so I think it's an incredible missed opportunity. And that's another thing I'm trying to change with my students. Um, Slowly so, but surely, eventually they are going to be in charge. <laughs> so. <laughs> they're going to have to. They're going to have to slay the old lion first. But okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I got two more things I want to ask you about. Uh, one of them is, um, one of them I think is going to light you up. The other one, uh, may, <laughs> may may catch you off guard. 
Um, but the first, the first one is um, predict the future. What is the next big impact coming for the practice of law as you see it from where you sit? I hope it's that the bar exam is going to cease to be the way most lawyers. Okay. That's the one that's going to light you up. So you have to give me another answer. <laughs> Cause I'm going to, I want to, I do want you to give me, I do want to hear about um, bar been, apocalypse. I've, you've been, yeah. You've been I've following been reading your Twitter. On Twitter okay, yeah. yes. So um, other than that, Ms. Moon, what, yeah. um, what is, what's the next, like, what is it that someone in my position, almost 30 years into the practice of law, better be ready for? Because it's coming and it's going to change what we do. So I think an easy answer to that is, I think I, I'm hopeful that there's going to be a serious shift in how we conceive our ethical obligation for technology competence and what I would call technology fluency. And um, already like 35 states, including Tennessee, have added this somewhat vague language that um, part of your ethical obligation is to maintain, um, to keep abreast of technology that could impact your practice, right? So um, I would say from my perspective, that means two things. and, And I think we need to expect this to become for there to be heightened attention and perhaps even heightened stated ethical obligations across jurisdictions. Like a specific duty. Um, Yeah, a specific duty. And I think it's a twofold duty. I think one, we have an obligation to understand technology that um, makes us better lawyers, right? That supports our practice and how we deliver legal services. Absolutely. So you, you can't just sit back and pretend that practice management software doesn't exist or that the cloud doesn't exist. Um, if it can, um, empower your practice and help you do better work for clients. The second piece, and when you talk about the law changing really slowly, I think we're in this really interesting time when it comes to technology. Technology is evolving at this incredibly rapid pace and, technology is having a tremendous impact on not just how we practice law, but actually law. Yeah. What the law is. Yes. What the law is and how we deal with different kinds of technology as it intersects with the law across the law. Um, You know, artificial intelligence is a great example. And so I, I think more and more, lawyers are going to find that they are handling matters that requires them to have a much more sophisticated understanding of how technology works for them to be able to advise their clients. And I'm not talking just about big corporate lawyers. Oh, you no. know, I, I, I mean, think technology is coming into play and impacting divorce law. Like I, I, had a, I, started, I started a hearing the other day with this. And, and I mean, I don't think it was out of line, but I said, Your Honor, I don't know how much the court knows about Venmo. Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, like I've got a 21 year old and a 23 year old. I've got Venmo. Yeah. I can send them money with Venmo. But I have to address a judge who's a little older than me that may not know what it is. And we're about to have a hearing that he's got to have a working understanding of Venmo or else we're wasting everyone's time because we're talking about whether or not you know, like payments were made and stuff like that. And, and, you know, yep. if, if, if I, if I've got a judge who doesn't understand what Venmo is or doesn't believe it's real money um, <laughs> or doesn't think, you know, like, yep. uh, you know, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I do, I do think that um, increasingly you cannot hide like 
Like you, no. when I was coming up, if you wanted to have a paper calendar and a dictaphone and a pencil, okay, and a legal pad, okie dokie. Like the, I remember practicing with lawyers who could not use a keyboard for anything. Like they could not make a document on a computer yep. to save yep. their life. Um, you can't do that anymore. You cannot hide nope. like that anymore. You will be exposed and you will be left behind. Okay. Um, bar apocalypse. So here we are, 2020. <laughs> um, yeah. And you seem passionate about this. So I'm just going to wind you up and let you go. Um, the situation, as I understand it, is this. We've got 50 jurisdictions or maybe 51 or whatever. Um, every state runs its own bar, its own you know, lawyer governing body. Um, traditionally the bar exam is given what twice a year, uh, the, the nationwide portion of the bar exam is given twice a year, but it's administered through each of these 50 States. Um, those States may have additional requirements, essay days to follow the multi-state bar exam or whatever. Um, and now we have different States taking radically different approaches to whether and when, and under what circumstances they're going to allow people who want to be lawyers to take this last step in their process to become lawyers because you have to take it and pass the bar exam. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't followed much about this, but it looks like some States have canceled July, the traditional July bar exam. Others are proceeding as if nothing is happening different. Um, <laughs> and, and others are making sort of a split decision where they're, they're still going to give it, but not to as many people or they're going to do it remotely or whatever. So um, what are you're close to the students who are being impacted? So, what's happening out there on the ground, and what what should be happening? So you are correct that it is all over the place across jurisdictions. So, example, New York State came out early to say that they're going to give it, but they're you you have to be. Um, you know, a graduate of a New York law school for you to take the exam in the state, like severely limiting and understand that, um, I mean, this creates a huge problem, for example, for a school like Vanderbilt, because we send a lot of students like they've, they've to, New York moved City. to New York, they've moved to New York, they've <laughs> signed a lease, they've accepted a job. And now they're being told by New York state that you can't take our exam. Yeah, because you went um, to this school so, not in the state. Exactly. It has nothing to do so, with the quality of the education you got. No, it has to do strictly no, with the zip they just code. are making this. So I think what, what you're seeing fundamentally, like it's a very, like there are a lot of, it, this is a thorny issue, right? This is not a super simple issue, um, but I'll try to kind of break it down into really two pieces. Right now we have a ultimately answer situation. this question to yeah. ultimately answer this question too. Should we even have a bar exam? But go ahead. I can answer that and say no. The bar exam okay. is not the bar exam, which has become this monolithic thing in and of and to itself supported by it's a complete industry. industry it's a complete it's an industry. industry right so now you have an industry around something that does not serve the intended purpose but we'll put that to the side that's actually okay, we'll come two. circle back to that let's let's look at this pandemic situation we have um students who have been completely uprooted upended who just like all of us are working with our kids and maybe our parents and our grandparents, like crazy circumstances. Um, you have 50 states deciding thing to do things differently. You have a lot of people who might be living in a place where they're not actually going to practice or take the bar. Like the, 
just the totality of how complicated the situation is right now. And then you have states who are demanding that students sign waivers, by the way. There are jurisdictions asking students to sign waivers and say, if anything bad happens because you showed up to take the bar exam, not our fault. Um, but we're not doing so, anything different. Just but we're not, we're not doing anything differently because the exam, damn it. The exam is the thing. We, we, there's no way you can be competent without. So are there states exam. literally like saying we're, we'll figure out the social distancing maybe, but you're going to come and you're oh, going to yeah. sit you're in the room come all day. If, if you want, but you don't have to, um, you don't have to take this test. What the hell? I'm sorry. You don't have if to you take ha- the test. You, you just don't spent have to three take years. the test. <laughs> yes. And you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and you cannot make a living until you take this test, but right. you don't have to show up and risk You don't have health. to take the test. You can um, go do whatever you want to do. You just so, can't be a lawyer. Exactly. So there are, I mean, that some of the orders that have come out of Supreme state Supreme courts and the, just the level of hubris um, and, and belittling there are, there are counsel for um, board of law examiners. And I think it's South Carolina there, this young woman, this law student has shared screenshots of this letter that it's not even veiled threats basically saying there are letters coming out suggesting if they continue to dispute the validity of having a bar exam a mass gathering in a pandemic nothing about which is consistent with cdc guidelines right now right it's a gathering of way over 10 people or 50 or 100 um so this young woman and others poorly upon her have, application. <laughs> have received, yes, suggesting that when it comes to character and fitness, this could be a problem for them, that they disputed <laughs> whether, I mean, okay. the, the hubris is just so, then you have states, there are some states, Oregon, Utah have already gone to diploma privilege. Now they've done it in some different ways and not everybody's happy. They've limited it so to diploma, certain schools. Or diploma that privilege means if you have a, a valid law de- law, yes. law degree from X, Y, and An Z ABA universities, accredited that we're just going to go yeah. ahead and wave you on in. Yep. You get to practice. And I have, Wisconsin, okay. Wisconsin has had a diploma privilege for its state schools for many years. And um, from what I understand, actually has a lower rate of um, ethical complaints, violations than so, other jurisdictions. So the diploma privilege states, are they doing in-state schools only? So there are different flavors of it. Um, so I believe that Utah is limiting it to certain schools that have a bar passage rate of a certain percentage or higher. Um, well, that's, and, that may or may not be terribly fair. I mean, if you're sending kids from so, a really will, good law school yeah. to California and New York, you're going to drag the pass rate down. It's, it is, I think any solution is problematic right now, right. but you're, I think you're picking back among to my bad point choices. one, yeah, point one, the real problem we have is that we have bar examiners and Supreme courts across the country who are completely unwilling to even examine creative ways to approaching this problem. And, and the circumstances are not just all the research that shows that the bar exam is a poor measure of protecting the public. The, Cause that's I, what they all say. We've got to protect this, the public. I've said this yeah. many times, the LSAT, which is the test, the standardized test you take to get into law school has almost nothing to do with whether or not you could ever be a good lawyer. Um, it, it, it probably doesn't even have much to do with whether or not you'll be a good law student. Um, it's an entry barrier and that's all it is. 
and it's it's designed to sort people out based upon some criteria that does not really measure whether they'll whether they will be a good law student or a good mm-hmm. lawyer. And the bar exam is a little bit like fraternity hazing. Um, the only reason that anyone can ever can ever give, which they won't, to support the continuation of this practice is that I had to do it. Right. Like that's why hazing is so hard to to stomp out in fraternities. It's not because there's anything about hazing that is useful. It's because, well, by God, when I was a freshman six years ago, we got hazed. So you're getting hazed. And that's kind of the mentality that it appears a lot of these bar examiners have is, well, how else? Well, we had to do it. And this is the only you know, this is what we do. Well, okay, I can tell you anecdotally. I know people that took the bar when I took it that failed, that it was very ridiculous. The, the fact that they would fail a test is no reflection upon them. It's a reflection upon the test. I knew these people. Um, they were plenty smart to be lawyers. And I can also tell you that there are plenty of people who have managed to pass the bar that should not be lawyers at all, period, ever, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. So, um, And now there's this probably billion-dollar industry built around it. Yep. Um, I and and the last thing I'll say, and you can re- react to this, if the general public, if if we ever suggested to the general public that surgeons should be allowed to become surgeons the way that lawyers are allowed to become lawyers, there would be an open revolt. Because here's how you become a lawyer: you take a ridiculous test about children in blue hats, which is the LSAT. You do well. You go to whatever school you get into. Then you take the bar exam, which what's what's raw passing on the 100 chess 100 multiple choice test 50 52 54 something like that like a terribly low percentage passes the multi-state like a, an f in in general academic terms is probably good enough to pass the the multi-state bar exam and the, the you pass and then they look into your background and they go okay well you're not a, a felon um and any misdemeanors you have are minor okay fine you're a lawyer Bam. Now you buy an ad, throw up a website, and, you be, and you're a lawyer. The idea that we would let someone become a surgeon that way? Hell no. No, 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 no. Never, ever. I want my surgeon standing four people back for a couple of years watching before they get to move up and hand the surgeon the scalpel for about a year. And like, then I want a surgeon holding their hand the first time they cut someone open, right? Like I, mentorship. That to me, to me, the key to improving the practice of law and ensuring its quality is mentorship, not some ridiculous test that you pay too much money to study for and take and pass or fail based upon reasons that have nothing to do with whether you'll be a good lawyer. So interestingly, there are models. Um, there are some jurisdictions in Canada that have a completely different system Um, You actually go through this experiential learning process post-law school that introduces you to how to practice, right? And um, with a mentorship component and everything. So you're, you're kind of like what you're describing with a surgeon. You're watching people do it. You're practicing in a safe way before you jump in and throw up your website and buy your ad. Um, There are definitely better ways that my, my whole point, my second point is that we must embrace this moment to truly examine once we've dealt with the graduates of 2020 and given them diploma privilege and given them the ability to practice 
Um, that's the only fair result right now. We cannot in good conscience ask these people to put themselves and their families and friends at the risk we are asking them to put themselves um, in order to support their livelihood. Um, these The stories that are coming out are heart-wrenching. You have people, um, people with with health issues and all these things that they're having to disclose just so that they can try to protect themselves and maintain their ability to make a living. And we are talking about people who have graduated from ABA accredited law schools. So what this does is it communicates back to all the law schools. We don't think what you're doing right. is adequate. Yeah, that, I mean, right? the premise, we, the we think you suck be. because our tests, right. Right. The premise has to be that, well, that's nice. You had this, you had this young person for yeah. three and you worked as hard as you could, but yeah. we, and only we, are the real yeah. diviners of whether they are any good. And we're and to, to figure that out, we're going to have them read 100 multiple choice test uh, questions and then write some essays. Yeah. Maybe. And, yep. it, and, and the bar exam is an exercise in, um, in, uh, in, in making people angry because <laughs> the, the, the directions – Right, the directions that you're given when you're studying for the bar exam by the people that help you cheat and pass it are, um, if you know anything about the law, there's it's it's A B C D, right? And a one answer you should be able to rule out if you know anything at all, it should be gone, right? There's there's another answer out there that if you know a, a little bit more than nothing, you should be able to rule it out, and then you're going to get down to two answers that are arguable, and you should pick the best. So like the gaming strategy that goes on in passing the bar exam is in rapidly identifying the, the, the bullshit answer, identifying the bad answer, and then quickly gaming your way through two answers that are probably debatable, but there's a better answer unless they've changed it. Is that the way it still is? That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen who, who, ladies and gentlemen who want to, who want to like, um, want to see behind the curtain. Um, this is how you pass the bar. You get good at, you get good at guessing between, uh, two ruling out one answer immediately, ruling out another one quickly, and then picking the best answer between two that are debatable and moving on and doing that yep. right about 55 of, out of a hundred times. Yes. That's, I, that's the bar exam. Certain. Yeah. I did about 10,000 practice questions this summer. I studied for the bar so that I can just, <laughs> to, just to be, just to develop that skill. Did that make me a good lawyer? Absolutely no. not. No, you know what um, makes people a good lawyer? Like empathy, uh, attention to yeah. detail. Uh, it, it, in fact, it's probably a lot of the, if you are really, 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 really good at passing bar exam tests, I'll bet you'll be a bad lawyer. <laughs> because you're just a gamer. Well, with, with that said, there is a whole lot of research on um, why the bar exam is not the right gateway to licensure for JDs. And so my second point is after we do the right thing for the class of 2020 and grant diploma privilege across the country, the next thing we need to do is not go backwards. Me meaning, yes, meaningfully look at how we should be regulating and licensing lawyers. And I think the put the, the biggest pushback on that is probably going to be from the the old old lawyers for whom this is how we do it, right? They're like yep. completely entrenched, and then the lawyers with like five years experience who view these people as competition. 
that that's probably where your biggest push. So our, our problem is that we do all of this from a place of how does this impact me rather than exactly. how do we, how do we lead for the greater good? Right. right. I don't care if they turn, um, I don't care if they turn a, a, a boatload of 26 year old lawyers loose yeah. on court next week. That's fine with me. Go ahead. Well, you know, considering that 80% of the people who have a legal problem don't get legal help, I would suggest that we are desperately in need of more lawyers, frankly. Um, We just aren't very good at connecting lawyers with um, people in a system that allows lawyers to earn a living because, you know, they have $200,000. Exactly. Because the first, the debt, first and biggest right. debt that any new lawyer has is not their mortgage or their car. It's their law school mm-hmm. debt. Law and school. so they're, they Absolutely. are forced to make terrible choices. I had classmates in law school. You probably did too. I had classmates in law school who had come to law school with an idea about, you know, let's, and I don't mean to sound this disparaging, but um, they had come to law school thinking I'll be a do-gooder. I'll go and I'll do. But they want to change the world. Yeah, I'll do. Absolutely. I'll do good works yeah. with my law yep. degree, and then yep. three years later, they're six digits in debt, and suddenly they're like, "Shit, I guess I'm going to have to go work for the man and delay yep. or or never become that do gooder I wanted to be." And then I had other friends who were in law school who were like, "Well, I really wanted to go home and practice with my dad in the small town I'm from uh, and take over his practice, but it turns out I can't afford to do that anymore. So now I'm going to have to move to." New York City or wherever until I can pay off my yep. debt and then I can go home. Yeah. Those are terrible those are terrible places to put people. So just what our brief conversation reveals, right? That all of this is interconnected. And unfortunately, um the people who make these individual decisions, like are these bar regulators, uh, board of bar examiners in the Supreme Courts um are you know they're in their silo making these decisions completely disconnected from the reality, completely lacking empathy for the people whose lives that they are essentially controlling at this moment. Um, So this is what I hope spurs a much more deep and intentional and meaningful and impactful conversation once we deal with the current emergency. That's my hope. That's what I'm passionate about. I would gladly take... I don't know if I could afford to pay them what they would want, but I would gladly take a, a baby lawyer and let them follow me around and learn what I do for a year or two and then sign off on them being a lawyer. I don't know if a year or two, whatever, a year, whatever. Um, that would, that would, that would be a more meaningful process to make them make sure that they have a good quality product to offer with good, with a good background in what we do than managing to guess correctly 55 out of a hundred times on a given Saturday. <laughs> yes. So there's a thing called articling in Canada, which is just that um, a law student gets out and goes to work under another lawyer for six months and learns how to practice, right? Um, six months or a year, but yep. Yeah. I'll, okay. Well, so as long as I'm going to like uh, share, share some concerns, uh, so I went to Vanderbilt. You went to Vanderbilt. I got out of law school. I had done reasonably well. I wasn't ordered the coy for anything, but I had done reasonably well. And I got the good job at the good law firm. And I went down, I got my new suit and I got on the elevator and I went to my office and they had two files on the desk. And uh, file number one had a memo on it that said, prepare disco- written discovery for the defendant in this case. And the other one had a, had a memo on it that said, uh, draft a memorandum, uh, a motion for summary judgment and a memorandum in support. 
And I held those two files and I looked at them both and I thought, shit, I don't know how to do any of those things. <laughs> and I was at the time being paid an astronomically good salary uh, and had gone to a, an elite law school and done well and passed the bar on the first try. And w when it came to the day that I was supposed to, quote, be a lawyer, I didn't know how to do it. So I went down the hall and I found a second yeah. or third year lawyer and I said, hey, how do I do this? And that lawyer said, ah, let me show you. So that's what happened. That's how I learned to practice law. Had nothing to do with anything I learned at law school. And it definitely had nothing to do with passing the bar exam. Yep. So, and I think that that's how we should learn how to practice law, right? I don't think it's law. I don't think it's law school's job to teach us everything and to create a practice ready lawyer. Um, there, we, we are constantly in a state of professional formation, right? We have stages and, and I think lawyers probably as more than any other profession, perhaps other than, um, doctors, medical doctors have this obligation to, um, you know, always be learning and iterating and improving what we do. And I think in part because of the privilege we hold to be the only people who can do what we do. Right. Um, we, we, um, are a guild that has this privilege that no one else has. And so, um, you know, we need to look reasonably at what should be expected of a law student who's just gone through three years and what do they need at that point to help them enter the practice and um, not be a liability, right? Not, not commit malpractice to be confident. Right, not screw you know up someone's life. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like, there's not even clear agreement on what are the competencies that a lawyer is expected to have when they enter practice. A bar exam is not like, there's not a universal understanding there. I actually have um, been a co-creator of something called the Delta model for lawyer competency. And one thing we're trying to do is really identify what are those core skills that a lawyer needs to have to be a competent, successful, thriving professional in the 21st century in large part, because no one seems to know um, <laughs> we have, an, we have a really right? expensive apparatus to give you a piece of paper and a license, but we yeah. haven't done a lot to figure out yeah, what but, you really but need to know how say, to do. But yeah, but nobody <laughs> can say what that actually means you're able to do. So, um, go to this school, pass yeah. this test and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. well, we got lots of work to do. Lots of work. I, to I do. agree. Uh, well, Kat, thank you for this time. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you want to pitch? Oh, the Poly um, Institute. You want to? You want to? Yeah. So some actually, of the people I listening do, are yeah. like us. They are either either reformed lawyers uh, or current lawyers, <laughs> and you you do have something to offer to. Uh, I to do. The older yeah. Set. So talk about that. I have. Yeah, I have a couple of um, things to share. So one, um, the Poly Institute, which is at innovatethelaw.com. Um, we do offer immersive workshops in all of these areas surrounding innovating in the delivery of legal services. And all of our content um, is applicable no matter where you practice, kind of what your practice area is, whether you're a solo or in a corporate law firm or in-house. 
Um, and I'm working on taking all of that programming online and also creating some micro-credentialing so you can take a big workshop or get it in little bites. Um, so keep your eyes open there. And then also I referenced the Delta model for lawyer competency. Um, I have a site with my colleague, Allison Carroll, who is a professor at Northwestern Law, designyourdelta.com. And we are working on tools that practicing lawyers can use to identify where, what skills they need to be focusing on in their own professional development and help them identify their gaps and then help them find places where they can get really meaningful content. And I'm not referring to CLE. I'm referring to actually good sources of learning about all the things that CLE completely fails to provide. And I will say very quickly, so the Delta model is a triangle. It has three sides. The three sides, the base of the, of the triangle is the practice of law. This is all the stuff you think about when you think about what you learn in law school. It's how to think like a lawyer. It's legal research, writing, um, all of that stuff, analyzing, um, reasoning. And it's the stuff the doctrinal stuff that CLE covers pretty well. Well, the Delta has two other sides. That's only a third of what you need to be a successful lawyer. One side is what we call process. That is understanding business fundamentals, project management, human-centered design, data analytics, all that stuff, technology. Then the third side, the left side, people, all the people skills. Um, consistently, all the research shows that the top competencies for thriving as a legal professional are always identified as the legal skills. Emotional intelligence, empathy, the ability to communicate well. Um, well, that explains why this is going so badly we, for me. <laughs> we, we, do not, we do not focus on or give those skills the due they deserve. And so um, my programming in the Poly Institute really focuses on the people and the process side. And then the design your Delta work helps just an individual person figure out, also helps you figure out what the hell do you like doing and how can you do more of that in your work so that you actually like your work better? I mean, how many attorneys have to do all this stuff they don't want to do? Like that's a choice. I know so many and, lawyers that became yeah. whatever kind of lawyer they are because when they got to the law firm they got to, the law firm said, we don't have anybody doing this. Yeah. Um, so why don't you do this? And then so they're do still this. doing it, right? And I know, a guy, I know a guy, I know a guy, I know a guy who, and I don't know if he likes it or not, but there's a guy I know who uh, he's become like the quadro go-to guy. Um, sounds like a fate worse than death to me, but maybe he likes it. But he, <laughs> he will tell you that he became that because when he got to the firm, they were like, um, basically no one here likes doing that. You figure it out. That's what you're doing. And now that's what he does. I'm not so sure that that's well, a great way to pick him, what to do. Yeah. I hope for him, he's happy doing that. But I do, my point is, I think if you are practicing law and you, and you know that things can be better for you in your professional life, um, I'm suggesting that we've created some tools that can help you. And okay, so that's, really that's design, design your, your designyourdelta.com. Okay, yeah. and the and the Poly Institute is is affiliated with law.com. That's a Vanderbilt. That's okay. um, yeah, that's a Vanderbilt. Okay, so the designyourdelta.com is kind of an online thing, and the Poly Institute 
has traditionally been a actually like full weekend or long weekend or whatever. Yeah. Go to, but now it's, you're, you're going to try to online. We're, that we're moving it online. Yeah. Hopefully in the fall we'll have our first online session. Okay. And okay. Last question. Um, yeah. Are you expecting students back on campus this fall? Um, currently we are. Yeah. Okay. Um, things are going to be heavily modified and our schedule is going to be drastically reduced, but I am set to teach uh, laws of business live and in person in a classroom at Vanderbilt Law School. So I also believe that that plan could change at any moment given the current situation, right? Yeah, I also have a daughter who's supposed to start as a freshman at um, University of Colorado at Boulder. And right now she's supposed to start in person. And I also believe that that could change. Anytime. Yeah, I so, think the people that are going to yeah. thrive for the next I don't know, six months or a year are people who can wake up and be told new rules and be like, yep. okie dokie. Yes. I think this is another, this is another human centered design mindset being comfortable with ambiguity, like embracing that ambiguity and being able to roll with it. That is a superpower right now. People yep. 90 superpower. days ago, I didn't have the studio I'm sitting in now. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> now I have a full home studio and I'm making a podcast. So yeah, well, um, and I have an office um, underneath the stairs in my house. So, yeah, okay. we do what we got to do, man. Right. Well, Kat, I appreciate your time. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Um, and uh, I'm sure when I listen to this to edit it, I will think, oh, man, I wish I'd asked her this. So I may <laughs> uh, I may, I may, may get you back, depending, okay. um, depending on what happens next. Thank you for your time. Um, good luck with um, all the Same changes to, to come. And uh, thank you for doing this. Well, my thanks to Kat for sitting down with me for that long. Uh, we did it, I guess, uh, appropriately by Zoom in this uh, summer of COVID-19. Uh, I've got a couple of closing thoughts on the issues that we talked about. Number one, um, I think that the bar exam was not in 1993 when I took it and is not in 2020 when others are trying to take it. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly good way to differentiate between the people who are prepared to become good lawyers versus those who are not prepared to become good lawyers. I, for one, think we should uh, reevaluate the process. I think personally that we would all be better off, the community at large and the bar in particular, if we did more of a mentorship uh, slash apprenticeship type approach to licensing lawyers. Um, more on that if anyone wants to hear it. Uh, second thought, if you are a lawyer wandering around with a paper calendar, uh, or if you have to call someone who works for you to know whether or not you are available for a trial date, uh, in six weeks or three months or whatever, um, that's fine. You do you the way you want to do you. Uh, just don't complain to me when the students coming out of law school in 2020 take your job. This is Dana McClendon. This has been Ready for Trial. If you like what I'm doing, click on the uh, likes and the subscribes and all that. Check me out on the YouTube channel. There's some different material over there. Follow me on all the social medias. And uh, you know what? If you know me and you have my phone number, text me and tell me you thought it was good. Or if you want to be a guest or you know someone who might be a good guest, let me know. Um, I need an endless supply of guests. So... Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Dana McClendon, and this has been Ready for Trial.